Compared to the Swiss alternative, the lifetime losses from paying federal income tax at U.S. rates would be $705 million for an investor who could average a 20% rate of return. But remember, that assumes an annual tax payment of $45,000. Compared to a tax haven like Bermuda, where the income tax is zero, the lifetime loss for paying taxes at American rates would be about $1.1 billion. You may object that an annual return of 20% is a high rate of return. No doubt you would be right. But given the startling growth in Asia in recent decades, many investors in the world have achieved that and better. The compound rate of return in Hong Kong real estate since 1950 has been more than 20% per annum. Even some economies that are less widely known for growth have afforded easy opportunities for high profits you could have pocketed an average real return of more than 30% annually in U.S. dollar deposits in Paraguayan banks over the last three decades. High investment returns are easier to realize in some places than others, but skilled investors can certainly achieve profits of 20% or more in good years, even if they do not consistently match the performances of George Soros or Warren Buffett. Obviously, the higher the rate of return that you could earn on your capital, the greater the opportunity costs that predatory income and capital gains taxes impose. But the conclusion that the loss is huge, indeed greater than the total amount of wealth that you may ever accumulate, does not depend upon your being able to achieve outlandish rates of return. Some mutual funds operating in the United States have averaged annual gains of more than 10% for more than half a century. If you could do no better than that, and you are among the top 1% of American earners, then your net worth is reduced by more than $33 million just by the income tax you pay in excess of $45,000 annually. Compared to a jurisdiction without income tax, the loss is $55 million. $55 rather than $55 million. If the profit-maximizing assumptions of economists are correct, as we believe they generally are, one of the more certain predictions you could make is that most people would act to salvage $55 million if they could. That is our prediction. When the black magic of compound interest becomes more clear in the minds of successful people in high-tax countries, they will begin to shop in earnest among jurisdictions just as they now shop for automobiles or compare rates on insurance policies. If you doubt it, merely stop people at random on the streets of New York or Toronto and ask whether they would move to Bermuda for $55 million. The question answers itself. The quandary it poses is reminiscent of that Mark Twain imagined in deciding whether he would prefer to spend the night with Lillian Russell stark naked or General Grant in full-dress uniform. He did not deliberate long. Residents of mature welfare states, particularly the United States, may be slower on the uptake, but only because they are not yet aware of the choice they face. In the fullness of time, they will be. You or anyone motivated by the desire to live a better life will see the attraction of reducing the losses you suffer from predatory taxation. You need merely lodge your transactions in cyberspace. This will, of course, be illegal in many jurisdictions, but old laws seldom can resist new technology. 
In the 1980s, it was illegal in the United States to send a fax message. The U.S. Post Office considered faxes to be first-class mail, over which the U.S. Post Office claimed an ancient monopoly. An edict to that effect was issued reiterating the requirement that all fax transmissions be routed to the nearest post office for delivery with regular mail. Billions of fax messages later, it is unclear whether anyone ever complied with that law. If so, compliance was fleeting. The advantages of operating in the emerging cyber economy are even more compelling than sidestepping the post office in sending a fax. Widespread adoption of public-key, private-key encryption technologies will soon allow many economic activities to be completed anywhere you please. As James Bennett, technology editor of Strategic Investment, has written, Enforcement of laws, and particularly tax codes, has become heavily dependent on surveillance of communications and transactions. Once the next logical steps have been taken and offshore banking locations offer the services of communication in hard RSA-encrypted electronic mail using account numbers derived from public-key systems, financial transactions will be almost impossible to monitor at the bank or in communications. Even if the tax authorities were to plant a mole in the offshore bank or burglarize the bank records, they would not be able to identify depositors. To a degree that has never before been possible, individuals will be able to determine where to domicile their economic activities and how much income tax they prefer to pay. Many transactions in the information age will not need to be domiciled in any territorial sovereignty at all. Those that do will increasingly find their way to places like Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, Uruguay, or similar jurisdictions that do not impose income taxes or other costly transaction burdens on commerce. From Monopoly to Competition Governments have become accustomed to imposing protection services that are, in Frederick C. Lane's words, of poor quality and outrageously overpriced. This habit of charging far more than government services are actually worth developed through centuries of monopoly. Taxes were ruthlessly raised on anyone who seemed capable of paying, precisely because governments had a monopoly or near-monopoly on coercion. This tradition of monopoly will clash in a profound way with the new megapolitical possibilities of cybercommerce. Encryption will make it easy to protect transactions in cyberspace. The cost of an effective encryption software program, like PGP, is less than the commission charged by a full-service broker on a trade of 100 shares. Yet it will render almost any transaction invisible and impervious to governments and thieves for many years to come. The new technology of the information age will effectively protect cyber assets at a vanishingly small cost. For $55, rather than $55 million, Participants in the cyber economy will enjoy better actual protection of their assets than they enjoyed during the industrial era or at any previous time in history. Easily used encryption algorithms and the capacity to shop between terrestrial domiciles for transactions will provide effective protection against the largest source of predation, nation-states themselves. That is not to say that territorial governments will be entirely outmaneuvered, They will still be able to exploit vulnerabilities to personal harm in order to extract head taxes, or perhaps even hold wealthy individuals to outright ransom. 
they will also be able to enforce collection of consumption taxes. Yet protection, the most important service governments provide, will be put on a more nearly competitive basis. Less of the cost that productive people pay for protection will be available to be seized and reallocated by political authorities. Technological innovations will place a large and growing portion of the world's wealth outside the reach of governments. This will reduce the risks of trade, sharply lowering, in historian Janet Abulagod's words, the proportion of all costs that otherwise would have had to be allocated to transit duties, tribute, or simple extortion. It has been rare in history to find governments truly constrained by competition. In the few times when something remotely like this has happened, governments were weak and technologies were similar between jurisdictions. As Lane suggested, the principal factor affecting profitability under such conditions tends to be the difference in protection costs paid by different entrepreneurs. The medieval merchant who had to pay 20 tolls to bring his goods to market could not compete with a merchant who had to pay only four tolls to deliver the same goods to the customer. Similar conditions are designed to return with the information age. Profitability will once again be determined not so much by technological advantage as by your success in minimizing the costs you are forced to pay for protection. This new economic dynamic directly contradicts the desire of government left over from the industrial era to impose monopoly pricing for its protection services. But, like it or not, the old system will be non-viable in the new competitive environment of the information age. Any government that insists upon lumbering its citizens with heavy taxes that competitors do not pay will merely assure that profits and wealth gravitate someplace else. Therefore, the failure of the mature welfare states to curtail taxes over the long term will be self-correcting. Governments that tax too much will simply make residents anywhere within their power a bankrupting liability. As the king, by his prerogative, may make money of what matter and form he pleaseth, and establish the standard of it, so may he change his money in substance and impression, and enhance or debase the value of it, or entirely decry and annul it. From an English court decision, 1604. The Death of Seigneurage Governments will not only lose their power to tax many forms of income and capital, they are also destined to lose their power of compulsion over money. In the past, megapolitical transitions have been associated with changes in the character of money. The introduction of coinage helped launch the 500-year cycle of expansion in the ancient economy that culminated with the birth of Christ and the lowest interest rates before the modern period. The advent of the Dark Ages coincided with virtual closure of the mints. While Roman coinage continued to circulate, quantities of money dwindled along with trade in a self-reinforcing downward spiral. The feudal revolution coincided with a reintroduction of money, coinage, bills of exchange, and other devices for settling commercial transactions. In particular, a surge in European silver production from new mines at Rommelsburg, Germany, facilitated an increase in the circulation of coin that helped lubricate commerce. The greatest revolution in money prior to the information age came with the advent of industrialism. 
The early modern state consolidated its power in the gunpowder revolution. As its control increased, the state asserted its power over money and came to rely heavily upon the signature technology of industrialism, the printing press. The first implement of mass production, the printing press, has been widely used by governments in the modern period to mass-produce paper money. Paper money is a distinctly industrial product. It would have been impractical before the printing press to duplicate receipts or certificates that became paper currency. Certainly, monks in the scriptoria would not have spent their time well drawing 50-pound notes. Paper money also contributed significantly to the power of the state, not only by generating profits from depreciating the currency, but by giving the state leverage over who could accumulate wealth. As Abu Lugod put it, when paper money backed by the state became the approved currency, the chances for amassing capital in opposition to or independent of the state machinery became difficult. Cybercash Now, the advent of the information age implies another revolution in the character of money. As cybercommerce begins, it will lead inevitably to cyber money. This new form of money will reset the odds, reducing the capital of the world's nation-states to determine who becomes a sovereign individual. A crucial part of this change will come about because of the effect of information technology in liberating the holders of wealth from expropriation through inflation. Soon, you will pay for almost any transaction over the net or World Wide Web at the same time you place it, using cybercash. This new digital form of money is destined to play a pivotal role in cybercommerce. It will consist of encrypted sequences of multi-hundred-digit prime numbers. Unique, anonymous, and verifiable, this money will accommodate the largest transactions. It will also be divisible into the tiniest fraction of value. It will be tradable at a keystroke in a multi-trillion-dollar wholesale market without borders. Dialing without dollars. Inevitably, this new cyber money will be denationalized. When sovereign individuals can deal across borders in a realm with no physical reality, they will no longer need to tolerate the long rehearsed practice of governments degrading the value of their money through inflation. Why should they? Control over money will migrate from the halls of power to the global marketplace. Any individual or firm with access to cyberspace will be able to easily shift out of any currency that appears in danger of depreciation. Unlike today, there will be no necessity to deal in legal tender. Indeed, in transactions spanning the globe, it will be likely that at least one party to every transaction will find himself dealing in a currency that is not legal tender to him. Disadvantages of Barter Reduced you will be able to trade in any medium you wish in the cyber economy. As the late Nobel Prize-winning economist F.A. Hayek argued, there is no clear distinction between money and non-money. He wrote, Although we usually assume there is a sharp line of distinction between what is money and what is not, and the law generally tries to make such a distinction, so far as the causal effects of monetary events are concerned, there is no such clear difference. What we find is rather a continuum in which objects of various degrees of liquidity, or with values which can fluctuate independently of each other, shade into each other in the degree to which they function as money. 
Digital money on global computer networks will make every object on Hayek's continuum of liquidity more liquid, except government paper. One consequence will be that barter will become far more practical. Increasing numbers of objects and services will be offered in specific bids for other objects and services. These potential transactions will be widely advertised throughout the world on the net, which will increase their liquidity by magnitudes. One of the principal drawbacks of barter has always been the difficulty of matching a person with one specific demand with another who had exactly that on offer and was seeking to acquire for himself exactly what the first proposed to trade. Primitive barter stumbled over the daunting improbability of exactly matching two parties wishing to exchange in a local market. Cash transcended the limitations of barter, and its advantages will continue to be compelling in most transactions. But vast increases in computational power and the globalization of commerce in cyberspace also reduce the drawbacks of barter. The odds of finding someone with exactly reciprocal desires to yours increase dramatically when you can sort instantly across the entire world rather than drawing on only those whom you might meet locally. Not subject to counterfeiting. While paper money will no doubt remain in circulation as a residual medium of exchange for the poor and computer illiterate, money for high-value transactions will be privatized. Cyber money will no longer be denominated only in national units like the paper money of the industrial period. It probably will be defined in terms of grams or ounces of gold, as finely divisible as gold itself. Or it may be defined in terms of other real stores of value. Even where different pricing measures are used, or certain transactions continue to be denominated in national currencies, cyber money will serve the consumers far better than nationalized money ever did. Rapidly advancing computational capacity will diminish the difficulties of adjusting prices to various media of exchange to the vanishing point. Each transaction will involve the transfer of encrypted, multi-hundred-digit prime number sequences. Unlike the paper money receipts issued by governments during the gold standard era, which could be duplicated at will, the new digital gold standard, or its barter equivalents, will be almost impossible to counterfeit for the fundamental mathematical reason that it is all but impossible to unravel the product of multi-hundred-digit prime numbers. All receipts will be verifiably unique. The names of traditional currencies, like the pound and the peso, reflect the fact that they originated as measures of weight of specific quantities of precious metals. The pound sterling was once upon a time a pound of sterling silver. Paper money in the West began as warehouse or safe deposit receipts for quantities of precious metals. Governments issuing these receipts soon found that they could print far more of them than they could actually redeem from their supply of bullion. This was easy. No individual holding a gold or silver certificate could distinguish any information about the actual supply of precious metals from his receipt. Other than the serial numbers, all the receipts looked alike, a fact that appealed to counterfeiters as well as politicians and bankers seeking to profit from inflating the supply of money. Cyber money will be all but impossible to counterfeit in this way, officially or unofficially. The verifiability of the digital receipts rules out this classic expedient for expropriating wealth through inflation. 
the new digital money of the information age will return control over the medium of exchange to the owners of wealth who wish to preserve it rather than to nation-states that wish to spirit it away. The Transaction Cost of Free Currency Use of this new cyber money will substantially free you from the power of the state. Earlier, we cited the dreary record of the world's nation-states in maintaining the value of their currencies over the past half-century. No currency has suffered a smaller loss from inflation since World War II than the German mark. Yet even so, 71% of its value vanished between January 1st, 1949 and the end of June, 1995. The world reserve currency during this period, the U.S. dollar, lost 84% of its value. This is a measure of the wealth that governments expropriated by exploiting their territorial monopolies on legal tender. Note that there is no intrinsic necessity that currency depreciate or that the nominal cost of living rise every year. To the contrary, the technical challenge of maintaining the purchasing power of savings is trivial. You can see this merely by looking at the long-term purchasing power of gold. Between January 1, 1949 and the end of June 1995, while the best of nationalized currencies lost almost three-quarters of its value, the purchasing power of gold actually rose. As documented by Professor Roy W. Jastrom in his book The Golden Constant, gold has maintained its purchasing power with minor fluctuations for as far back as reliable price records are available, to 1560 in the case of England. National currencies linked to gold have also maintained their purchasing power when military exigencies were not pressing. The value of the British pound sterling rose, rather than fell, during the relatively peaceful 19th century, even though it was only weakly linked to gold. The new megapolitical conditions of the information age make feasible not a weak link, like the gold standard, but a strong link, reinforced for the first time by vastly improved information and computational resources in the hands of consumers. The threat of the speedy loss of their whole business if they failed to meet expectations, and how any government organization would be certain to abuse the opportunity to play with raw material prices, would provide a much stronger safeguard than any that could be devised against a government monopoly. Friedrich A. von Hayek Privatizing Money Friedrich von Hayek argued in 1976 that the use of competitive private currencies would eradicate inflation. Without legal tender requirements forcing acceptance of an inflating currency within a jurisdiction, Hayek argued market competition would force the private issuers of currency to preserve the value of their exchange media. Any issuer of a private currency failing to maintain its value would soon lose its customers. The evolution of encrypted cybercash will bring Hayek's logic vividly to life. The theory of free banking, as it is called, is not merely a hypothetical academic speculation. Private competing currencies circulated in Scotland from early in the 18th century until 1844. During that period, Scotland had no central bank. There were few regulations or restrictions on entry into the banking business. Private banks took deposits and issued their own private currencies backed by gold bullion. 
As Professor Lawrence White has documented, this system worked well. It was more stable with less inflation than the more heavily regulated and politicized system of banking and money employed in England during the same period. Michael Prouse of the Financial Times summarized Scotland's free banking experience. There was little fraud. There was no evidence of overissue of notes. Banks did not typically hold either excessive or inadequate reserves. Bank runs were rare and not contagious. The free banks commanded the respect of citizens and provided a sound foundation for economic growth that outpaced that in England for most of the period. What worked well under the technological conditions of the 18th and 19th centuries will work even better with 21st century technology. You will soon be able to deal in digital money from a private firm issued much as American Express issues traveler's checks as receipts for cash. An institution of greater repute than any government, such as a leading mining company or the Swiss Bank Corporation, could create encrypted receipts for quantities of gold or even for unique bars, identified by molecular signatures and possibly even inscribed with holograms. These receipts will then trade as money, with almost no possibility that they can be counterfeited or inflated. The new digital gold will overcome many of the practical problems that inhibited direct use of gold as money in the past. It will no longer be inconvenient, cumbersome, or dangerous to deal in large sums of gold. Digital receipts will not be too heavy to carry. Indeed, their only physical existence will be as elaborate patterns of computer code. Nor will it be difficult to divide digital receipts into units small enough to pay for even micro-value purchases. A wafer of physical gold tiny enough to pay for a chiclet would soon be lost or confused with one tiny enough to pay for two chiclets. But it will be as easy for the computer to distinguish these denominations of digital money as if they were the size of a chipmunk and a rhinoceros. The capacity of digital money to deliver micropayments will facilitate the emergence of new types of businesses that heretofore could not have existed, specializing in organizing the distribution of low-value information. The vendors of this information will now be compensated through direct debit royalty schemes that overcome previously daunting transaction costs. When the cost of billing exceeds the value of a transaction, it probably will not take place. Use of cybermoney facilitates very low-cost, simultaneous billing, in which accounts are debited with use. We cited such an example previously in imagining that you might pay a royalty equivalent to one-third of a penny to Bill Gates or whoever owns the virtual reality rights to tour the Louvre. Multiply this in a thousand ways. Virtual reality will create almost unlimited licensing opportunities that will nevertheless command only micro-royalty payments. One day, you will be able to replay the third game of the 1969 World Series and pay micro-royalties to the players whose images are used to make your virtual reality seem real. Eradicating Inflation Such possibilities notwithstanding, Surely the most momentous consequence of the new digital money will be the end of inflation and the deleverage of the financial system. The economic implications are profound. The rise of inflation in the 20th century, as we argued in Blood in the Streets and The Great Reckoning, was intimately connected with the balance of power in the world. 
Increasing returns to violence dictated sharply higher military expenditures, which, in turn, required ever more aggressive efforts to expropriate wealth. Governments found that they could effectively impose an annual wealth tax on all who held balances in their national currencies. This annual wealth tax on currency holders could also be seen as a transaction fee for allowing the users of currency to maintain their wealth in a convenient form provided by the issuers. Inflation had another lure during the industrial period when prices and wages were downwardly inflexible. Modest inflation increased output by reducing real wages and prices. Thinking of inflation as a transaction fee for the convenience of holding currency may be unusual, but consider it closely. During the Industrial Age, we became so accustomed to thinking of the provision of currency as a service for which one does not pay directly, that it was easy to forget that the issuers of the dollars, pesos, pounds, and francs, namely governments, did require that we pay, and pay dearly, through inflation. The rate of this inflationary transaction fee on currency varied during the last half-century from a low of 2.7% annually for the German mark to rates perilously close to 100%. For example, between 1960 and 1991, when President Menem launched Argentina's currency board reform, inflation struck 17 zeros off successive versions of Argentine currency. If all the wealth of the world had been converted into Argentine pesos in 1960 and buried, it would not have been worth the effort to spade it up by 1991. Argentina's example is a leading indicator for the next millennium. Currency will not be inflated because other nation-states will no longer be able to get away with it, just as Argentina no longer can. The difference will be that private money dispersed over the net will be even less susceptible to a reversal in policy than Argentina's automatic currency board system, which could be damaged by a credit contraction imported from other countries. Private money will not be inflatable because of competitive market pressures. The death of inflation will take away the disguised profits that inflation previously conveyed to those who were the monopolistic issuers of currency. If all the disguised profits of issuing money were extinguished, a new method of payment would be needed to compensate the issuers of currency directly. Use of the new monetary system will therefore probably involve a more explicit transaction cost, perhaps a fee on the order of 1% per annum. This will be a small price to pay compared to the annual inflationary penalty of from 2.7% to 99% imposed by nation-states. All the more so because there is a likelihood that overall prices will decline in the future as monopolies are eroded and competition intensifies worldwide. Contracting Leverage The emergence of digital money will not only defeat inflation once and for all, it will also contract leverage in the banking systems of the world. The ability of people everywhere to bypass regulatory authorities and shift their funds directly through the Internet is an entirely unprecedented consequence of the globalization of markets. It will be beyond the power of any government to regulate. When governments can no longer depreciate currency by printing money or defraud savers by expanding credit at will through captive banking systems, 
they will lose a major part of their indirect capacity to commandeer resources. Higher interest rates. This will create an obvious dilemma for most Western governments. They will face sharp drops in revenue from taxation and the virtual elimination of leverage in the monetary system. At the same time, they will retain the unfunded liabilities and inflated expectations for social spending inherited from the industrial era. The result, to be expected, is an intense fiscal crisis with many unpleasant social side effects that we will consider in later chapters. The economic consequence of this transition crisis will probably include a one-time spike in real interest rates. Debtors will be squeezed as long-term liabilities contracted under the old system are liquidated and concessionary credits dry up. Altered by Competition Governments facing serious competition to their currency monopolies will probably seek to underprice the for-fee cyber currencies by tightening credits and offering savers higher real yields on cash balances in national currencies. Some governments may even seek to remonetize gold as another expedient to meet competition from private currencies. They may well reason that they could gain higher seigniorage profits from a loosely controlled 19th century gold standard than would be the case if they allowed their national currency to be displaced entirely by commercial cyber money. But not all governments will respond in the same way. Those in regions where computer usage and net participation are low may opt for old-fashioned hyperinflation in the early stages of the cyber economy. This will not enable these governments to capture the cash balances of the rich, but it will wring resources from those with little wealth or access to the cyber economy. Governments using such tactics might nonetheless borrow internationally in cyber money. Still, other governments may adapt to the opportunities created by the information economy and facilitate local transactions in cyber money. Those jurisdictions that first recognize the validity of digital signatures and provide local court enforcement of repossession for non-payments of cyber debts will stand to benefit from a disproportionate surge in long-term capital lending. Obviously, no cyber money would be available for long-term credits in territories where local courts imposed penalties or permitted debtors to default without recourse. Yield Gap The combination of credit crises, competitive adjustments by national monetary authorities, and early transitional obstacles to lending cyber currency will lead to a yield gap in the early stages of the information economy. Cyber money will pay lower interest rates than national currencies and will probably also carry explicit transaction costs. Offsetting these apparent drawbacks to holding balances in digital money will be enhanced protection against losses due to predatory taxes and inflation. Because it will probably be gold-linked, cyber money will also benefit from the appreciation of gold. The price of gold will probably rise significantly relative to other commodities, no matter which of the alternative government policies predominates. Why? The real price of gold almost always rises in deflation. A deflation, after all, reflects a shortage of liquidity. Gold is the ultimate form of liquidity. The Deflation of the Industrial Age Higher real rates all around will spur liquidation of high-cost, unproductive activities and temporarily reduce consumption. 
We explored the logic of the credit cycle and its unwinding in Blood in the Streets and the Great Reckoning, so we will not rehearse those arguments here. Suffice it to say that the deflationary environment may drag on for some time, with more adverse consequences in the high-cost industrial economies of North America and Western Europe than in the low-cost economies in Asia and Latin America. Lower Rates Long-Term While the early consequences of the emergence of the cyber economy are likely to include higher interest rates, the longer-term consequence will be just the opposite. The after-tax returns to savers will sharply increase as resources escape the grasp of governments. Dramatic improvements in the efficiency of resource use and the liberation of capital to find the highest returns globally should rapidly compensate for the output lost early in the transition crisis. Investor Control Over Capital Conventional thinkers reviewing our argument at this point would conclude that the breakdown of income redistribution in the leading nation-states would doom the world to economic collapse. Do not believe it. We do not gainsay the fact that a transition crisis would be likely, but the view that the state improves the functioning of the economy by massive reallocation of resources is an anachronism. An article of faith roughly equivalent to the widespread superstitions at the close of the Middle Ages that fasting and flagellation were beneficial for a community. It should not be forgotten that governments waste resources on a large scale. Wasting resources makes you poor. A dramatic improvement in the efficiency of resource use will arise when revenues historically engrossed by governments come to be controlled instead by persons of genuine talent tens of billions, then ultimately hundreds of billions of dollars will be controlled by hundreds of thousands, then millions of sovereign individuals. These new stewards of the world's wealth are likely to prove far abler than politicians in utilizing resources and deploying investment. For the first time in history, megapolitical conditions will allow the ablest investors and entrepreneurs, rather than specialists in violence, ultimate control over capital. It is not unreasonable to expect that the rates of return on this dispersed, market-driven investment could be double or triple the meager returns from the politically-driven budget allocations of the nation-state era. It was not uncommon in the final decades of the 20th century to find examples in any country of government investment that were substantially negative. We cited official Russian statistics in the revised version of the Great Reckoning from November 1992, suggesting that the whole of Russia's economy was worth just $30 billion, less than a third of the value of its raw material inputs. By implication, the output of Russia's economy would more than triple in value if the domestic manufacturing and service economy were shut down completely. Instead of contributing value, they subtract it. Admittedly, the example of Russia after the collapse of communism is an extreme one, but there is ample evidence that reducing state control of resources tends to improve economic efficiency. Growth rates cited by The Economist suggest that economic liberty is strongly correlated with economic growth, with the most rapid rates of growth in the freest countries. The cyber economy of the information age will be more free than any other commercial realm in history. It is therefore reasonable to expect that the cyber economy will rapidly become the most important new economy of the new millennium.
its success will attract new participants from everywhere on the globe. In the same way that the wide use of fax machines made telecopying increasingly attractive for non-users. But even more important, freedom from predatory violence will allow the cyber economy to grow at far higher compound rates of growth than conventional economies dominated by nation-states. That is perhaps the most important point to be made in anticipating the economic impact of the likely collapse of monopoly taxing and inflating capacities of government. Setting aside transition difficulties, which could last for decades, the long-term prospects for the global economy should be highly bullish. Whenever circumstances allow people to reduce protection costs and minimize tribute paid to those who control organized violence, the economy usually grows dramatically. As Lane said, I would like to suggest that the most weighty single factor in most periods of growth, if any one factor has been most important, has been a reduction in the proportion of resources devoted to war and police. There could be great efficiency gains arising from a reduction of the resources devoted to predation and living off the spoils of predation. If the pricing of protection were placed on a competitive basis, with local monopolies competing for customers on a basis of price and quality, potentially huge gains to efficiency would be possible. The result, to be expected, would be much lower rates of taxation and less loss of resources and effort in political activity, which would no longer pay its previously huge dividends. Would voters willingly forego political windfalls to which they have become accustomed? That is an issue we take up at length elsewhere, but a simple answer is that we may have no choice. No one now demonstrates against rainy weather or drought, however economically damaging or unpleasant it may be. No one, however criminally inclined, holds a pauper to ransom demanding a huge payment on pain of death. If it becomes impossible for politicians to obtain resources to redistribute, the public may respond in a rational way and forget about politics, just as well-intentioned people ceased organizing marches of penitence when the Middle Ages came to an end.